I don't know what will. The great name of our God, and that's what we're here to do this morning, is uh, to lift up uh, His great and matchless name. If you're uh, visiting here with us this morning, welcome. Uh, thank you for visiting here us, us here at Faith Bible Church. We really do appreciate your presence, uh, maybe more than you, you'll ever know for you to be here with us. It uh, means a great deal to us. Uh, for those of us who are regulars, thank you for being here as well. I know many of you are watching online, uh, maybe watching this archive. So we just appreciate uh, you fellowshipping with us uh, here at Faith Bible Church. We're in an exposition right now of the book of Daniel. Uh, we've titled this series, The End Time and the Meantime. And uh, we've made our way to Daniel chapter 5. So if you uh, have your Bible, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me uh, to the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. And uh, we've entitled this morning's message, I Have a Handwriting Expert. And uh, we'll look at that in a moment. Let's, uh, let's lift up our, our hearts in prayer to the Lord. We have uh, several members of our staff right now who have COVID. Um, Joel Mott, our worship leader, Joel has COVID and is, is getting better. But uh, he's not here with us this morning. He's moving next week. You know, he's moving from Houston to here. And so he's got a lot on his plate. So we need to be praying for Joel Mott and also for Connie Goodson and uh, one of our other uh, children's ministry team members, uh, Deborah, as well. So um, anyway, let's lift them up in prayer. And let's just go to the Lord and commit ourselves to him as we open his word together. Uh, we remember the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who said, There's none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. O Father, we do come this morning, and we bow humbly before you. And we recognize that there's no one like you, that you're great, and your name is great in might. And Father, you're not only great, but you're good. And you're so good that you've sent your Son to come and to be our Savior, and to give us the free gift of eternal life, and to wash away all of our sins, the friend of sinners, our Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for so great salvation that you provided for each one of us through your dear son. Father, we thank you that you're just not the body of the God of our, our souls, but you're also the God of our bodies. You care about us physically. So, Lord, we lift up Joel Mott to you today. We lift up Connie. We lift up Deborah. We pray that you'd put a hedge of protection, Lord, around their families so they won't be infected as well. Lord, we pray for our church, that you do that for all of us and our families, Lord, that you'd protect us. And we pray for the other churches here in Edmond and around the state as well, that there'd be a special hand of protection upon those who come and, and worship your great name together. Well, Father, we, we pray now as we open your word together, uh, that you'll, you'll open our hearts and our minds to the truths that are found herein. We pray, O oh Lord, that the, the seed of the word of God this morning will find fertile soil in our hearts will bring forth a great harvest of righteousness. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you now and to your grace for this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 5 is the famous passage about the handwriting on the wall. And uh, years ago, when our boys were younger, I used to tell them Bible stories at night before they'd go to bed. And I'd do my best to make the Bible stories exciting and interesting. Um, I would uh, try to, to, to grab their attention. I wanted to make the Bible come alive to them. I didn't want them to think of the, the Bible as just kind of a, a dead old dry book. So one night I told them the riveting story of Daniel chapter 5, of King Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. And at the end of what I thought was a great job of telling the story, um, I asked my sons, what do you think this story is about? Uh, what does God want us to learn from this story? And our son Justin looked up at me and said, I think it means you're not supposed to write on the wall. 
Now, that's not the point of this passage, but as a dad, I was really glad that he made that application uh, from this passage, because all parents know uh, that writing on the wall is not good. But we're going to open our Bibles here to Daniel chapter 5, though, this morning and find out what this passage is really about. Now, let me read uh, the first six verses. We won't read the whole chapter this morning, but these first six verses will set the stage for us. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink uh, from them. Then they brought the gold... uh, then they, they, then they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and ban- began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Well, may the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts uh, here this morning. There's a story, I know I've shared this story before, and I'll probably share it again. It's one of my favorite stories about uh, King uh, Louis XIV of France. He ascended the throne when he was four years of age and ruled for 72 years, longer than any uh, reign of any monarch in modern European history. I mean, he was so intoxicated with with his own power, he called himself the great monarch. And he would often say about himself, I am France. But in 1715, uh, King Louis XIV, like all other rulers, vacated his throne to death. He'd arranged his own funeral ahead of time, and it was nothing short of spectacular. The the great cathedral was packed with mourners who were going to pay their final respects to the great king. Um, His coffin was solid gold. It It was laden with jewels. And there was one solitary candle, the only light in this huge cathedral was one solitary candle that was burned above his jewel-laden casket, and it was there, obviously, as a symbol of his greatness. So thousands waited there in hushed silence, gazing at that solitary flame. And at the appointed time when the funeral service began, Bishop Massillon Um, who presided over this great state funeral with all the the assembled clergy of France there and all the dignitaries. And he rose and he walked up to the pulpit there. He opened his Bible and he did something that stunned the nation. He bent over and went, he blew out the candle. And of course, the whole audience gasped. And from the darkness echoed four gripping words, only God is great. And then he went on to give uh, the message of the morning. But that's the message of Daniel 5. Only God uh, is great. And in Daniel 5, we meet another smug sovereign. We meet a, a, a mocking monarch. We meet a cocky king here in this chapter, like Louis XIV, a king who thought the towering walls of Babylon were impregnable. He believed the city was indestructible, so he was bloated with pride and arrogance. But as we'll see in this chapter, he was in for a rude awakening. This sovereign discovered that God is sovereign. He discovered that only God is great. So this is the famous story of the handwriting on the wall. And it shows us not only that God is great, but it also shows us that every person is being judged and weighed by God in their life. And those who treat God lightly 
Someday it will be found wanting. Those who fail to acknowledge the greatness of God. So this is a powerful message for all of us here this morning, but especially for rulers and leaders and politicians who need to understand, no matter how much their greatness here on earth may be, that heaven rules. So it's a a very sobering warning against political arrogance, so much of which we see today. Now, as we get into this passage, I want to kind of put it in its framework In Daniel 2 through 7, this is kind of the big uh, main section, really one of them in Daniel, you have chapter 1 that I call the personal history of Daniel, but in Daniel 2 through 7, you have the, the prophetic history of what's called the times of the Gentiles, when Gentile nations will rule over Israel. And these chapters are presented in what's called a chiasm, where it's like a concentric pattern or a parallel pattern. And what you see in these chiasms is chapter 2 presents these world empires in four uh, parts or metals in a great image. Then in Daniel 7, the same thing's going to be presented, these empires, as four wild beasts. In chapter 3, God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. In chapter 6, we'll see next week, he's going to deliver Daniel from the lion's den. So those chapters are parallel. Then you move to the middle, and you have chapter 4 we saw last week where God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar. And now in chapter 5, he's going to humble Belshazzar. So you can see how it works towards the middle. And so in these chiasms like this, the, the focal point is always the center of it. And so the center, really, of this section of Daniel is chapters 4 and 5, where God is showing above any, beyond any doubt that heaven rules, that God bestows on uh, human kingdoms the rulers that he desires, that heaven rules, that only God um, is great. Now, let's put this text here in its context. We've, we fast-forwarded 25 years from Daniel chapter 4. Uh, we passed over a quarter of a century of history. And all of the events here in this chapter that we're going to look at here this morning, all of them happen in one night. And we know from history that it was Saturday night, October the 12th of 539 B.C. Now, while this big feast is going on inside the walls of Babylon, the city was besieged by thousands of Medo-Persian troops on the outside under the rule of King Cyrus. The Persian army was camped outside the walls. And Daniel 5 here is an eyewitness account of the final night of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Again, it all happens in one night. And so this chapter records what we saw in Daniel 2, the transition from the head of gold to the arms and the chest of silver. So it's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel uh, chapter 2. Now I want to unpack this chapter under three simple points. Uh, We'll begin uh, by looking at uh, what I call a night of revelry. This is the feast of Belshazzar. Then we have a night of revelation. We have the fingers of God. Then we have a night of retribution, which is the fall of Babylon. So the story opens with a night of revelry, and it opens with the words, Belshazzar the king. Now, immediately we ask the question, well, who is Belshazzar? Well, Belshazzar, I believe, was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a daughter who married a man named Nabonidus, and they had a son named Belshazzar. Now, when it says in verse 2, and actually it'll say this quite a few times in the chapter, that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, back in that day in the Aramaic and Hebrew language, the word father just means an ancestor or a predecessor. So your great-grandfather might be called your father, your great-great-grandfather just meant one of your ancestors. 
So Belshazzar here is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar served as co-regent or co-king with his father, Nabonidus, for 14 years. That's why twice later in this chapter, he's going to promise anyone who can interpret the handwriting on the wall that they'll be made third in the kingdom. The reason they'll be third in the kingdom is because Nabonidus and Belshazzar are co-kings, if you will. Whoever would, could interpret this then would be third in the kingdom. Now, one thing I want to mention here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but before 1854, scholars would say that, that Belshazzar was a fictitious character. He didn't really exist, uh, that Daniel just made him up. But in 1854, they found something that became known later as the Nabonidus Cylinder. It's found over in modern-day Iraq in 1854. And lo and behold, it's the writings of Nabonidus the king in a cuneiform cylinder, and he mentions his son Belshazzar, who reigns with him as co-regent. So I just mention that because people always try to proclaim that the Bible's not accurate, that it's made up things. It's not historically and archaeologically accurate. And again and again, the Bible's proven to be true, and skeptics are proven to be in error. But Belshazzar throws a massive party. Um, there are probably, uh, most scholars say, maybe 2,500 people there. There were 1,000 of his nobles, but with all the other people, about 2,500 were present. And it, it, would, it would have been held in the, the, the uh, throne room of Nebuchadnezzar's southern palace. And his throne room was about 10,000 square feet, so a massive room. And it would have been a party, you know, in keeping with those times of a great deal of debauchery. Um, as people became uh, more and more drunk, it would have been uh, a drunken orgy. So it was, it was wine, women, and song. Now, why did Belshazzar throw this party? I mean, you've got the, the uh, Medo-Persian army on the outside of the walls. Why is he doing this? Well, probably one thing, it was, it was a way of diverting attention from what was happening outside the walls, kind of a distraction as they're gathered having this party. But also it served as a massive morale booster. I mean, it was meant to lift the spirits of the entire city because the Babylonians believed they were safe and secure. We know from history they had about 20 years of provisions stored up. I mean, they were overstocked. The Euphrates River ran right down through the middle of the city, so they had an abundant water supply. So this feast was really an act of sheer bravado. Belshazzar thought he was impervious to the, the Persian threat on the outside and certainly believed he was impervious to any threat from God above. And so this is a, a time of drunkenness and debauchery that ultimately deteriorates and leads to defiance and blasphemy and mocking and sacrilege against God. And of course, we all know that drunkenness makes people do profane and perverse things. Sin snowballs. When people get uh, under the influence of alcohol or drugs, sin begins to snowball in their lives. But the real issue in this chapter is not alcohol, but it's arrogance. There's, a, there's an echo in this chapter of the chapter before where Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had to be humbled by God. And so Belshazzar here brings in all of the vessels from the temple back in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by his grandfather many years earlier, and they begin to drink uh, from these vessels. So it's, it's a flagrant failure to acknowledge the sovereignty and the power and the glory of the God of Israel. 
And one man I read this week said it beautifully. He said they were, they were feasting when they should have been fasting. They should have been fasting and calling out to God to deliver them and have mercy on them for their sins. But they're, they're feasting in an act of bravado. Now, why does Belshazzar bring in the vessels from the temple? Well, again, it's, it's an act of blasphemy and bravado. Probably since the, the Medo-Persian army is outside there, he's bringing these vessels in because it's a reminder that their God, they believed, had defeated the God of Judah many years before. So it's kind of like, look, we'll celebrate how great our God is. He defeated the God of Judah long, long ago. It's, it was a reminder of past victories for them. But it's also contempt for God's vessels, and it's an evidence of contempt for God himself. Because how you treat somebody's stuff is kind of how you treat that person. For instance, if you uh, go to work and all your stuff is stacked outside your office some morning, what does that probably mean? You're not working there anymore, right? So how they treat your your stuff indicates how they treat you. And the same is true here. Belshazzar treats these vessels from the temple with contempt because there's no reverence and no honor with him for the true God. There's a story I read about a a young American student who went to visit the Beethoven Museum in Bonn and became fascinated by the piano that Beethoven had used to compose some of his greatest works. So she asked the museum guard if she could play a few bars on it, and she accompanied the request with a very lavish tip. So against his better judgment, he agreed to let her play a little bit on Beethoven's piano. This young lady went to the piano and tinkled out the opening of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And as she was leaving, she said to the guard, I suppose all the great pianists who come here want to play that piano. And the guard shook his head and said, Paderewski, the famous Polish pianist, was here a few years ago, and he said he wasn't worthy to touch it. Where's the sense like that of God today, of that kind of reverence, a deep sense of unworthiness before God? Where's the awe and the wonder of God? We see in our culture today so many people like Belshazzar, who mock God and blaspheme God and fail to give God um, his due. Now, we get down to verse 4, and it says, They drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. By this time, Belshazzar is feeling pretty good. He's probably pretty well lubricated by this point in time, but he's about to find out how misplaced his confidence really is. And suddenly, the night of revelry turns into a night of revelation. We move from the feast of Belshazzar to the fingers of God. Now, in the midst of this celebration, this drunken celebration, a detached, disembodied right hand appears and begins to write a message on the wall. You talk about creepy and spooky and eerie. This hand appears and begins to write on the wall. There's a a famous painting. Some of you may have seen this. Um, It's fascinating how back in... uh, the Middle Ages and, and later uh, from that period of time in Europe, how much of the art was about, about the Bible. Kind of it, the, the society was immersed in Scripture. But this was painted by Rembrandt in 1635. It's a famous painting, The Feast of Belshazzar, and uh, shows these words being written there on the wall and the, and the terror that strikes the people who are there. But notice the text says that it wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall. Now, archaeological discoveries have found that there was a niche there in the throne room where Nebuchadnezzar's throne was, and behind it was a large white plaster wall. 
And so it's very specific in the text. It's opposite the lampstand. In other words, it's right by a lampstand where everybody could see it, and it's on the plaster of the wall. So it's right behind where, uh, where Belshazzar would have been sitting in this niche where his throne was. And God writes an indictment of Belshazzar on the wall. I like what Robert Louis Stevenson said years ago. He said, sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. It's true in life, isn't it? Sooner or later, we all have to sit down to a banquet of consequences of how we've treated God and treated His Son and treated His Word. And Belshazzar is sitting down now to a banquet of his own making. Now, back in the ancient world, whenever a, a, a monarch or some king defeated other armies, he would often cut off the right hand of every person that was there, and they would put them in a big pile. And it would show the magnitude of their victory as they chopped off all these right hands. It was a sign of victory. Remember um, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines? It was taken into the, the, uh, the temple of their god, Dagon. Remember, Dagon falls over and his hands break off. And again, it was the, the hands were broken off as a sign of defeat. So here in Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar's use of the goblets and the vessels from the temple was supposed to give him and his people a reminder that they had defeated the god of Judah. They'd cut off his hand, if you will. So in Belshazzar's mind, Yahweh is a defeated God. He's nothing. But God wants him to know that he's very much alive. So his hand, certainly almost a right hand, uh, the symbol of supposed defeat, appears and begins to write on the wall. God is not defeated. In fact, we could even say here that God has the upper hand, and the pun there is intended, by the way. But he's still on the throne, right? God is in charge. And never did a drunk sober up so quickly. The whole room, I think, was suddenly uh, gripped in a stunned, petrified silence. And verse 6 says, the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. In other words, he's terrified. His hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. There's just like a, a ripple of fear from head to toe that traverses the body of, of, this, of this terrified king. Now, when it says here in verse 6, his hip joints went slack. Literally, in the, in the original language, it's the knots of his loins were untied or loosed. Now, I don't want to get too graphic here, but what it literally means is he lost control of his bodily functions. He lost control of his, of his bladder and his bowels. If I was telling this story to my grandchildren, I'd say he peed himself and pooped his pants, is what I would say. Now, you probably never hear that in church again any other time. <laughs> but it's quite a scene. That's what happened. I mean, you think about this king there. He's standing there. He is scared to death. And he's standing there looking at this writing on the wall. And, and his fear is compounded when he calls in all of his wise men, the Chaldeans, the diviners, the conjurers, and he says, if you can give me the interpretation of this, you'll be clothed with purple, a great gold necklace will be put around your neck, and you'll be made third in the kingdom. But none of them are able to untie uh, this knot. None of them are able to crack this cryptic code of what's written on the wall. So verse 9 says, King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. 
And then it says the queen entered the banquet. The queen here is probably the queen mother, which is a woman named Nitocris, who is the, the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's mom. So this is Belshazzar's mother, the queen mother, who's the daughter of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And she comes in and begins to tell him about a man named Daniel in whom the spirit of the gods is present. And he says in the middle of verse 11, or she says, And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him as chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. That's interesting. The king is Belshazzar, and he is Belteshazzar. And I remember years ago, someone saying the only difference between Belshazzar and Belteshazzar is the cross. It's the letter T. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So notice Daniel's not at the party. Daniel, in verse 13, is brought in before the king. He wasn't at the party. He wasn't invited. Probably wouldn't have come if he had been. But he's Belshazzar's last resort. And think about this in your life and my life. When unsaved people come to a time of crisis in their lives, they often turn to someone that they believe is in touch with God, don't they? And they may not care about you other times, but when a time of bad enough crisis comes, people are looking for someone that they believe knows God and is in touch with God. And so Daniel comes in. The king here says that, you know, he's a a man of the exiles from Judah. That's interesting. He says, are you not Daniel who's one of the exiles from Judah? And he knows in his mind he's just been blaspheming the God of Judah by bringing these vessels in to drink from them. I heard about that there's a spirit of the gods in you, literally the spirit of God. Some people translate that. And he offers Daniel the, the uh, robe of purple, the great necklace, making him third in the kingdom. And I love verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to somebody else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Daniel refuses the gifts because he knows that Babylon and Belshazzar are toast. Um, Daniel taking these gifts would have been like somebody getting a promotion the day before their company goes bankrupt. I mean, Daniel realized this means nothing. Uh, Daniel knows at this point the kingdom's finished. But I think mainly here he wants to make it clear that he can't be bought. Because when you go down in verse 29, after he interprets the writing on the wall, he actually does accept the robe and the necklace. Because I think at that time he figures, why fight it? I mean, this thing's about over with anyway. And he knows now that there's no accusation or danger that someone can accuse him of being bought. But he knows there's a great lesson for us here in this passage. And that is Daniel is in his mid-80s and God is still using him. And there's a lesson for all of us here. Whatever your stage of life, don't think that God is finished with you. Stay spiritually healthy and ready to serve God at a moment's notice. Again, Daniel's in his mid-80s, and people are finished with Daniel, but God's not finished with him yet. He's still courageous. Think about this. Here's Daniel in his mid-80s, and he hasn't leaked out any of his passion or his spiritual power. In fact, the older you get as a believer, the more passionate and the more powerful you should become. The king says about him here, the Spirit of God is within this man. 
And so I hope that, that those of us maybe who are a little bit up in age, I hope you're not leaking. You're not leaking your passion and your power for God. And I hope you're still available and ready for God uh, to use you. you know, over in Corinthians, Paul says that our outer man is decaying, or it's perishing. You could actually translate that word rusting. The outer man is decaying and rusting, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. As we get worse on the outside, we ought to be getting better on the inside and stronger. And I hope for, for those of you who maybe are up in years here this morning, I hope that's true of you, that you're not losing your passion and your power uh, for God and your relationship with Him. Don't quit. Keep going. You know, uh, Bum Phillips, who used to quote the, uh, coach the uh, Houston Oilers, he had a lot of great quotes that, that people have quoted from him. One of, one of my ones I like is his wife one time said to him in the middle of a season, she said, Bum, I think you love me more than you love football. And he looked at her and said, well, I guess I have to admit I, I do love you more than I love football, but I love you more than I love basketball, which didn't exactly make his wife feel real good, I don't think. But one time asked what he was doing in retirement, somebody, Bum Phillips, said this, nothing, and I don't start doing that until noon. And that's the way, tragically, a lot of people are when they retire. You ask them, what are you doing? I'm doing nothing, and I don't start that until noon. But again, no matter how old you are, until you're totally unable, and look, all of us can reach a point physically or mentally where we're just not able to, to, to serve God anymore in any, in any kind of a way. But until that time comes, be ready and remain available for God to use you and to impact uh, people around you. That's the way Daniel was. Now, before Daniel gives the interpretation of the writing on the wall, Daniel delivers a stinging rebuke. Let me begin in verse 18. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Again, it's his grandfather. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. Remember, we saw that last week. Verse 21 describes it. He was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and sets over it whoever he wishes. Look at verse 22. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. He knew about it. In fact, he might have even seen it. We don't know how old he is at this time. He may even have seen his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, out there crawling on all fours out in one of his hunting parks out there. And seeing how God had restored his reason to him when he repented and turned uh, to the true God. He knew all this, but he deliberately, defiantly rejected the revelation God gave to him. So the issue with Belshazzar is not ignorance, but it's insolence. And, and it's a great lesson for us that knowing the truth is not enough. It's not enough to be moved emotionally or psychologically or even physically. We have to surrender to God and obey Him. 
Having clear information doesn't guarantee a right response. I read a quote by the Puritan Thomas Goodwin this week I'd never read before, and it's, a, it's powerful. He said this, remember, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. And think about that. Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons, but they had no impact on his life. Just knowing information and knowing the truth is not enough. You have to surrender to it. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Daniel, says this, truth is important, but we must have power to receive and to welcome the truth to respond to it properly. And then here's a great warning he gives to churches like ours. He says, Bible-believing churches and fellowships rightly place a premium on the place and ministry of the Word, but we must be awake to the peril of having the Word without the Spirit. We must plead that the Spirit of God will cause the Word of God to be obedience-producing and life-transforming. For when truth does not humble us or lead us to worship, we're simply Belshazzar clones. We don't want to be Belshazzar clones. We want the Word of God to be obedience-producing and life-transforming in our hearts and lives. But here Belshazzar, as he sinned against the light, he'd seen God at work. He knew who God was and knew what he'd done, and yet he uh, rejected it. A lot of us know the name Aaron Burr now with all the focus on Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton. Of course, he killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. But Aaron Burr was the, the, the third vice president of the United States. He actually tied Thomas Jefferson in the number of electoral votes for president, but he lost in a vote of Congress largely due to the efforts of Alexander Hamilton, which Burr later challenged Hamilton to a duel and killed him. But this discredited him politically, and he was later tried for treason but acquitted. Aaron Burr lived a long life, but he lived an unhappy life. He was a very unhappy man. Now think about this too. Aaron Burr was the grandson of the godly pastor Jonathan Edwards, who had a tremendous impact, obviously, on our country. And he died while he was just a young boy. But he had a godly heritage, and Aaron Burr walked away from it. Later in his life, when he was in his 80s, Aaron Burr said this, 60 years ago, I told God that if he would let me alone, I would let him alone, and God has not bothered me since. What a terrible, tragic thing. God, if you'll leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. God never bothered him since. But you can't get rid of God that easily. Someday, you have to deal with God. A day of reckoning ultimately is coming. But like Belshazzar, Aaron Burr knew the truth and rejected it. And there may be some of you here, there may be somebody listening, and you've rejected uh, the legacy in your family and the godly heritage that the Lord's given to you. Don't sin against the light. Don't cut yourself off from the past, because if you do, you'll lose yourself in the present and you'll forfeit your future. Don't treat the things of God, the holy things of God, lightly. You and I need to remember that, who've got a godly heritage in our families. One other thing I'll mention here is a way of application. You know, God still judges leaders. God judges nations for sin. And there's a lot of frightening parallels in Daniel 5 to our country today. The sexual immorality that was at this party, the drunkenness and drug abuse, pride and idolatry and, and mocking God. And think about all that, that, that our nation has experienced of the blessing of God, all the kindness of God that we've experienced all of the, the good providence of God that has been upon our country. And tragically, we're a nation today that's sinning against the light that God has given to us. 
We've been so blessed by God. But if we continue to turn away from him and spurn his blessing, God won't let it go on forever. And it could even be now, and I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but certainly the handwriting could be on the wall for our nation even today if something dramatic doesn't happen. And the only thing that can save us now is a sweeping revival and repentance in our country. And by the way, it has to start with us. It's great to talk about what God's going to do out there in our nation. But again, if, we're not, if the Word of God isn't obedience-producing and life-transforming with us, we can't expect God to do something great in our nation. But, Be- but Daniel here has given Belshazzar a history lesson. He gives him a history lesson. You, you knew all this and you didn't do it. Now he get- then he gives him a theology lesson. Notice what he says in uh, verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. They brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways, you have not glorified. He gave him a history lesson. He gives him a theology lesson. And now he's going to give him a spelling lesson. Notice in verse 25. Now the inscription that was written out, mene, mene, tekel, you parson, a cryptic code. And we don't know why that Nebuchadnezzar's uh, men couldn't, uh, his conjurers and Chaldeans couldn't read it because it's written in Aramaic. But you know in the language there, it goes from, uh, they go from right back to left. It may have just been all the continent, consonants, or it may have also been written vertically. But for whatever reason, they couldn't read it. But the words written there were mene, mene, tekel, you parson. And the word mene really is the word mina. These are all weights of coins. So it's a mina, and then the word tekel is the, the Aramaic word for a shekel. And then you parson means a half shekel. It's been cut in half or divided. So the word mene means numbered, and really your time is up or your number's up. Takel means weighed, and it means you don't measure up. You're, you're light. You're insubstantial. And you parson is a form of the word peres, which means divided. You'll be divided up. And so this... Uh, this uh, code here is cracked, this cryptic code by Daniel, and he interprets it. I like what someone said years ago. They said, Daniel could read the writing when no one else could because it was his father's handwriting. And I like that he's able to read uh, this cryptic code. And literally what God's saying is you're, you're, you're uh, finished, you're flimsy, and you're fractured. And the word you parson there comes from a, a, a word peres, that's P-E-R-E-S, but the consonants are P-R-S. And many have noticed the similarity there to the word Persia, same consonants. So what, he, what he's really saying to him is, uh, your number is up, uh, you don't measure up, and your kingdom is going to be Persianized. It's going to be divided among the Medes and the Persians. That's what he tells him in verse 28. Your kingdom has been divided. It's been given over to the Medes and the Persians. And then suddenly this night of revelation becomes a night of retribution, We see here the fall of Babylon. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple, a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, history tells us that while this party was going on inside, and by the way, um, ancient historians tell us about a great festival in Babylon that night. 
While that was going on inside, Cyrus the Persian was diverting the waters of the Euphrates River into a basin by means of a canal. He lowered the water down to about thigh level deep. And some Persian commando units went in under the the wall of the city where the water was and sprung a surprise attack. But when they got into the city and went under under the, the water there in the Euphrates, there were still walls on each side of the Euphrates. And again, history tells us that it was a night of drunken festivities, and some of the soldiers on the wall thought some of their own soldiers had fallen down into the Euphrates and went down and opened a gate for them. And of course, they came in and killed them, opened the gate for more of their soldiers, make their way to the main gate and open it up, and the Medes and Persians come flooding into the city. We also know from history, it says that Belshazzar was slain that night in the very palace where he was standing by one of the generals of King Cyrus. And that's exactly what verse 30 says. The same night, October the 12th, 539 BC, the Saturday night, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. The party's over. I remember back when I was a boy and Monday Night Football first came out, Don Meredith was on there, and he'd always start singing that song when a big team was getting killed at the end. He'd always start singing, turn out the lights, the party's over. And the party's over. The lights are turned out on Belshazzar and on his kingdom. And Belshazzar learned too late that only God is great. One man I read this week said this. This is a a powerful quote. He says, by morning, the Median and Persian armies had swept into Babylon and conquered it. Belshazzar was a corpse in the palace, and hearing the condemnation of the maker, whom he had so boldly despised and mocked the night before. Think about that. His body's lying there as a corpse in the palace. His soul has gone to the presence of God to hear the condemnation of the maker, whom he'd so boldly despised and mocked the night before. He learned too late. He believed too late that only God is great. Belshazzar's number was up. You know, none of us here this morning know how much time we have left. We don't know how much time our nation has, but we don't know how much time we have. None of us know how much time we have personally. Any one of us could die at any time. We all know life is fragile and fleeting. We don't know how much time we have personally. We don't know how much time we have prophetically. Jesus could come back at any moment. But you and I need to be ready. But the problem is, in and of ourselves, all of us are spiritually, uh, we've been weighed spiritually by God and found wanting. We're light. We're insubstantial. On our own, we're spiritual lightweights. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, and literally it says, and are falling short of the glory of God. We don't have any spiritual weight on our own. We've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent Jesus to take our place on the scales, if you will. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. And for all of us who will believe in him, he will sweep all of our sins off the scales. He will put the heaviness and the weight of his own righteousness there uh, to our account. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that's what you need to do here this morning. You need to receive him. If you've never trusted in him, you are spiritually light, and someday you will be weighed in the balances, and you will be found wanting. But the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, believe in him, that he's God in human flesh, 
the one who came and died in your place on the cross and rose again on the third day, God will sweep your sins off the scales and place upon the scales the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So if you've never done that, why not trust him here this morning? Why not take him to be your Savior and receive him? I'll close with this this morning. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Hear these words. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and our God for he will freely pardon. God will freely pardon you this morning of all your sins if you'll simply come to him through Jesus Christ and trust in him to be your savior. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come before you this morning and we confess humbly, all of us do in our hearts, that you alone are great. Only God is great. We bow before you humbly this morning and we give you your rightful place in our hearts, in our homes, our families, our marriages, here in this church. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning as they've heard the word of God preached this morning, they, they realize that they're light that they don't measure up. May they come and take Christ to be their Savior this morning so they can have all of His weight and all of His heaviness, all of His righteousness placed to their account in heaven this morning and find life and forgiveness in Him. Father, use Your Word in our lives this morning. Father, we pray for our country. That writing may be on the wall, Father, against us. We pray that You will give us one final chance She'll send a sweeping revival and a repentance in this land. And Father, may it start with each one of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.